good to be back with you this week. If you've been here with us, you know we've been working through a, a series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I made mention this last week, but I know we have some uh, first-time visitors here, but uh, we are committed to preaching the Bible here, and so that's what we do. We preach through uh, books of the Bible. Um, this first series we are doing, we're calling it The Way of Paradox, um, following the right-side-up king in an upside-down world. Am I getting feedback? No, I'm good. Um, and so if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the passage up to follow along today. Uh, but I do want to encourage you, if you own a Bible, bring it to church. Um, we put them to use here. Uh, we also have some available on the table right outside the front doors there. It's from this, uh, the version that I preach from, which is the English Standard Version. Um, so even if you wanted to make your way back and grab one now, you can do that. Otherwise, grab one on your way out. Those are a gift to you. So you can you can have one and then bring it back when you come back next Sunday uh, so you can follow along with what we're with what we're talking about. Um, so today we're going to be looking at a passage in Mark chapter 2. Uh, last week uh, we looked at a passage in Mark chapter 1. We, we actually are going to be skipping around a little bit in Mark's gospel over the next 12 weeks, and so we just missed one uh, narrative, and it was an important narrative, but uh, for the sake of time I've chosen to gloss over it. Uh, not that it's less important, but we've... Oh yeah, I didn't even dismiss our children. Gosh, I'm so excited to talk about Jesus. We love our children. Our, our children's coordinator, Krista, has already ushered most of them up to their classrooms. Wow, that's amazing. See, it's just great. We have a great team here. Um, back to where I was. Mark chapter 1, there's this narrative where Jesus does another healing. He heals a, a, a leprous man, and he tells this man uh, not to go and tell anybody. In fact, it's called the Messianic Secret. What Jesus was trying to do was he was trying to, to keep his earthly ministry under wraps for a moment because he had some work to do. Uh, well, this man was healed, and he was so amazed by the healing that he couldn't keep the secret. So, uh, yet shame on him. He did not listen to Jesus, and he went and told the world about it. And so at the, at the point of us arriving in chapter 2, there's a great crowd of people, okay? There are many people that have heard about Jesus and what he's doing, and there's great interest in him. And so that's where we arrive today at our passage in Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses of that uh, chapter. So Mark chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, and then ending in verse 12, and you can follow along here. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come to you yet again, asking for your help. Lord, we thank you for giving us the Bible, your love letter of pursuit of us, Lord, that it is so 
clearly spoken of who Jesus is from cover to cover. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we open your word that, that you would move this man aside and that you would, that you would make yourself known, and that you would be pleased uh, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of every heart that's in this room, Lord. Would you help us in these endeavors? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Had the opportunity this week to, to travel a little bit. I drove down to Las Cruces um, for some church business meetings that we do uh, every few months or so. And, and when I'm driving by myself, um, I listen to a lot of boring stuff. Uh, when I'm with my family, it's a lot of not boring stuff, lively music. We're, we're a lively crew on our road trips. But on my personal road trips, I listen to boring stuff. And so uh, this week, I, I stumbled across an NPR. It's boring to my wife. It's not boring to me. I got, I got some looks back there like, why would you listen to boring stuff? This is fascinating to me. Well, I came across a po- podcast. It's called Fresh Air. Uh, NPR puts it out. And they just do these random talks about things and interviews with with interesting people. And and the one I happened to listen to that day was with a, uh, a New York Times uh, a writer who's a food critic in New York. And he was talking about the process of, of critiquing restaurants and, and what all that looked like. And he was talking in this interview about how um, food, the food industry, and particularly critiquing it, has really changed a lot. And it's changed because of the onset of technology, things like Instagram. And so he went on to talk about how Instagram has made everybody in the world think that they're uh, an amazing chef. Uh, Instagram has has been produced this ability to take pictures of these fascinating dishes that people can look at from wherever in the world and then think that they can replicate that dish. Uh, I'm guilty as charged. Um, I think I'm an amateur chef sometimes, and and I take pictures of things I cook or eat or whatever. In fact, I did that this week. But um, uh, so so there's this this innovation that Instagram has created that that we think we can take something in all of its intricacies, like food, and that we can produce it on our own simply by looking at it. As we come to the text today, I think we do that with Jesus a lot. In fact, that's the underlining paradigm for this entire series, is I think that many of you in this room are familiar with Jesus on some levels. You've seen Jesus, you've heard about Jesus, you know that he died on a cross perhaps, and you know some of the things about Jesus. But as we go through this narrative and the the narratives through the rest of this series, I hope that you encounter Jesus in new and fresh ways. And I I think that's what he's going to do to us today. I think he's actually going to surprise us in new ways. I think that he's going to um, show us that the nearer that we get to Jesus, the more clearly we see ourselves in light of him, and it changes us. It's what we've seen the past two weeks. And so um, today, Jesus is going to show us that, that what we least expected to be our greatest need is actually what we need most. Let me repeat that. So what we least expect to be our greatest need in our life is actually what we need most. And so here's here's the response that I hope that we have as we hear Jesus speak to us through the word today, and it is this. It's a response that all of us would do everything in our power to get close to this king, that we would remove every obstacle in order to be in the presence of this one that we're encountering today. Here's how I want to break up the passage. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to first consider the nature of faith. Then we're going to look at the nature of sin. And then we're going to thirdly look at why we need forgiveness. So let's consider the nature of faith. Uh, Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's back at his home. They call it his home in the text. It's actually Simon Peter's home uh, where they had been hanging out previously where the healings occurred. And he is in this intimate setting when he's bothered by the crowds. 
Now, you have to know that in Mark's gospel, and as we work through it together, you'll, you'll come to see this, that crowds are very important to Mark. In fact, before we even get to chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, Mark will specifically talk about crowds 40 times. And Mark uses crowds not necessarily in a positive way. Crowds are actually primarily viewed as an obstacle to get to Jesus. And so we see that to be the case here, that these men are going to take their men or their friend to Jesus, but the crowds are blocking access to Jesus. And so crowds around Jesus are not necessarily a good thing, even though in our culture and in the consumeristic type of numbers-oriented culture that we thrive in, uh, it's not necessarily what, what Jesus uh, wants for his people. In fact, uh, there's a little wordplay going on in here. There's two little Greek words, nothing too fancy going on here, but the word for crowd and the word for house sound a lot alike. Okay, oikos and aklos, just not a big deal. They sound the same. And so what Mark is doing is he's, he's putting against each other what it means to be a part of the crowd and what it means to be in the home. Or in other words, what it means to be an outside observer and what it means to be in the intimate presence of Jesus. And so that's what he's getting at here. And he's going to show us that the nature of faith actually gets us to the latter, closer to Jesus. Um, we live in a culture uh, that, that misdefines faith all the time. Uh, our movies do it. Our books do it. Our, our children are oriented towards thinking of faith in, in, in inappropriate ways, I think, unbiblical ways. Let me, let me pick out a couple of those. I think there are two great ways that our culture misinterprets faith. One of those is, uh, the myth of the quantity of faith. In other words, if you just have enough faith, things will go well. If you just believe enough, things will go your way. And so it's this this looking for God to bless your work if you just have enough faith. The other danger is, is what I call the quality of faith. If you just believe well enough, if you're just that committed, if you're one of those insiders with Jesus, you're at church every week. You're on one of our teams. We'll talk about what it means to serve, but you're just, you're, you have this great faith that, Je- that Jesus will bless that. Well, I think the exact opposite is happening because the way I like to think about faith is faith is like a windshield. Okay, we all have windshields. And windshields were never meant to be looked at, right? If you're driving down the highway and you're focusing on your windshield, you will be in great danger. Windshields were meant to be looked through. And the same is true of faith, right? Faith was never meant to be our object. We are not to have faith in having faith. The the substance of our faith is what we're viewing, what we're looking at, what we're looking through. Faith is the means to which we reach the ends, and and biblical faith rests more on the object than it does on faith itself. That's exactly what's happening here. These men, they are taking their paralyzed friend on a mat to Jesus. They've heard that he will heal him, okay? Now, does their faith understand the fullness of that? No. Do they have a, a an inside-out understanding of this coming Messiah and how he was bringing a kingdom to them and this was just a sign pointing towards it? No. These men wanted to, their friend to be healed. They thought that this was his greatest need. And so they pursued him in faith. And they were resting that, that Jesus alone could save them. Now, Jesus is going to spin it on us and show us what their greatest need actually was. But what we see here is that Regardless of what these men knew about faith or knew about Jesus, they wanted to get close to him. They got through every obstruction around this crowd. They went through a roof to get close to Jesus. 
Um, I just want to spend a few minutes here kind of just making this really practical. Um, here at Mosaic Church, this is kind of vision casting. We are trying to build not a great crowd, not great onlooking observance. There, there's options for that if you want to do that. We are trying to build a community of faith that wants to be close to Jesus. That's what we're trying to do here. And so we want to see people that are uh, th- that have a desire and that have a longing to know this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, better. And there is no greater way to fight spiritual ap- apathy than to serve other people. Let me repeat that. There is, if you're in a place where you know church is new to you, perhaps, or even coming here was like a stretch. Like you got to the parking lot and your your palms got a little sweaty. You saw all our signs. You thought this place is going to be crazy up in here. I don't know what's going on. Um, it, maybe that's you. Um, I, I know you. I've been you, and that's okay, that's an okay place to be. But the, and maybe you're the extreme. You're like. Mr. Churchgoer, you've been, you've already been to two services this morning. You know, you're like checking them all out. I mean, that might be you too. But my point here is that the greatest remedy to spiritual apathy is to serve other people. And there is no greater need than in our church and in Christ's church to serve other people because that, in fact, is where you will see God's love put on display primarily. Let me just lay it out again, being super practical today. We have four teams that you can, you can volunteer to serve right now. Like, we are a young church, and it takes a lot of work to do what we've been doing, and we need more help. And the reason we're trying to strum up more help is because we want people to get close to Jesus. And so let me just even just lay out our four teams and how it helps people get close to Jesus. One of our teams we call our first impressions team. That's basically our greeting team. We try to instill in them that from the moment that our people get out of their car to the moment that they sit down, that that is the hospitality and love of God put on display. And so I hope you were warmly greeted. You know, we don't do it perfectly. You know, sometimes we're, we're you know, we're, we're just not perfect. But but there is an opportunity for people to to be encountered by God's love in that way uh, in our church. Uh, another one is is our mobile setup. So all of this was a cafeteria before we showed up, and now it's seats for people to be close to Jesus in. And so if you're just one of those people that can just swing chairs around and be a faithful presence here, that is a great way to get served and plugged in, but also to bring people near Jesus. Another one is our family's ministry, who I snubbed today terribly. Your pastor didn't even acknowledge the importance of our children, but that is such a great opportunity to bring our children near Jesus. It's a great opportunity to get plugged. The last one I'll mention is, is just our creative arts team. It's, it's this ever-forming uh, musician and technology and arts and video and photography, all of that kind of stuff. If you have gifts towards that, it's a gift that can bring people near Jesus. And so, again, let me just repeat that the, the remedy to your spiritual apathy is found in serving other people. And so the nature of faith is not to focus on faith itself, but to focus on the object of faith itself. And that's what's going on in this passage, that these men want to get near to Jesus. And so their faith is seen by Jesus, um, and it's identified in verse 5. Let's consider the nature of sin in verse 5. Um, have you ever been... Um, Su- pleasantly surprised by something. Uh, perhaps it's a, it's a gift that you weren't expecting that you didn't think you needed, but turned out to be so. Or perhaps it's a, it's a class that you thought would just, just be horrendous, but it turned out to be a great blessing in your life. Whatever it is, you've been surprised by something, right? Well, that's actually what happens here is these men, 
Again, let's put ourselves in their sandals. These men have gone to great extent to get near to Jesus. They've removed this thatch roof, which you can imagine that was a bit of work. I mean, Jesus is preaching, people are all around, you know, some of the, the, the dirt starts falling down, and, and this man comes down from the roof. He's dropped down in this bed close to Jesus, right? And so these men have brought him here for one reason and one reason only, to get healed, right? This man wanted to be able to walk again. And so the natural thought would have been, well, Jesus knows what this man wants, but does he give him what he wants first or does he give him what he needs? He gives him what he needs. Look at the way Jesus responds when this man shows up in verse five. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven I mean, that would have been one of those moments where the record stops and scratches, right? Like, wait a minute, Jesus, do you not see what's going on here? Our man, our friend is paralyzed. Clearly, sin is not the problem. His health condition is the problem. What Jesus is doing is, is showing that, that our deepest hopes and desires are not always our greatest needs. Our deepest hopes and desires are not always what we ultimately and first uh, and foremost need. Jesus shows him that, that the main problem is, is not just our suffering, but it's our sin. He addresses it. He takes this man to the next level, to the heart level. And so one of the questions that comes up in my mind when I'm reading this text is, well, was there something particularly sinful about this man? You know, did, did this man have some, you know, heinous sin that, that couldn't be overseen in order to receive the healing? Did he have to deal with that first? And, and most commentators are, are simply saying, no, that's not the case. I mean, yes, his sin, his uh, sickness is tied to his sin in the general way that all of our sin has, has impaled all of our world and all of the brokenness surrounding that, including sickness. But Jesus isn't addressing some particular sin that this man's uh, addressing. He's, he's actually dealing with, with all of our sin. What Jesus is beginning to, to do is he's, he's giving this man a new paradigm to think about his sin. Because do you know what sin primarily is? Sin, could, one way, could be looked at as this way. Living life the way you want to live life. Living life in the world that God made without reference to him. That's, that's a fundamental way of looking at sin. And that sin plays itself in all kinds of ways, all kinds of actions that we do. But I think when you and I think about sin, we typically think about breaking rules, that God's set out these rules and we're supposed to be good people, walk old ladies across the street, do all the right things. But sin is so much deeper and so much more fundamental than that. It's living life without reference to God. And so do you know what this man's sin sound like? This man's sin sounded like this. If only I could walk, I would be happy. If only I were healed, I would never be discontent again. And so though that may not be your problem, your problem sounds a lot like it. If only I could get that promotion. If only I could have more children or less children. (laughs) Sorry. If only I could what, would I be more happy? What is that blank for you? Because that's the fundamental problem that Jesus is dealing with. He's showing us that our chief sin is choosing a different savior. And so though those things may be good, job promotions are wonderful. Children, most of the time, are wonderful. Romantic relationships are wonderful, but they were never meant to be ultimate. And so when we place them in that place of ultimacy, 
We've turned them into our God and they will fail us. So even if your blank gets filled, you will still be discontent and unhappy. You will always want more because that is the nature of sin. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And so Jesus takes this man to the heart level. He gets really close to Jesus. I mean, he's, he's fought through the crowd and he's at Jesus's feet and Jesus offers him the thing he needs most, forgiveness. He needs cleansed and healed from the inside, not just the outside. That's the nature of sin. Well, let's explore why we need forgiveness then. Why do we need forgiveness in verses 6 down through 12? Um, I know that you're in church, so you may not have a direct hostility towards Christianity, although you may. You may have been dragged here or forced to come, and I don't know that situation, but but there is a general hostility towards Christianity that talks about things like sin. I mean, let's be honest, we'd rather talk about some things that are a little bit happier, right? Let's let's keep it upbeat in here, Adam. You know, give me some some tools to work with here, some some better life principles. But but Jesus doesn't do that, so so neither will I. But the world hates Christianity primarily, I think, in, at least in my understanding of and survey of culture, is, is because of this. We talk about the need for forgiveness and for a savior. That is fundamentally woven into the fabric of our belief. That we believe that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, namely rescue us. And so we talk about that a lot. Um, we see that, that Jesus in this passage is going to show us his authority and his ability to forgive us and forgive this man, but he does it in a way that, that, that puts his authority on display in a very physical, real, tangible way, right? He says to these, to these scribes that the ship, the scene shifts now, right? It's not, it's not necessarily on the paralyzed man and his friends anymore. Now it's to these naysayers. It's to these grumbling scribes who are saying, well, who can, who can forgive sins but God? And rightly so, these men were astute Jewish theologians. They knew that, that it was God alone who could extend forgiveness. In fact, these Jewish men and rabbis and even everything in the Old Testament sacrificial system with the, the, the blood of the bulls, the goats, the lambs, all of that was never meant to ultimately bring forgiveness. It was simply a band-aid over a gaping wound that Jesus would come to heal. And so these men knew that God alone could provide this forgiveness. God alone could atone for the sin. And so Jesus, he, he, Jesus is so witty. I mean, he's just, if you have never sensed Jesus' humor and wit in scripture, read some more. Um, he does it here. He says, listen, men, I understand it's easy to just say your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, I could go around saying that. Your sins are absolved. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, all fine and dandy. But how do you prove that? Well, Jesus says, I'll show you how I prove it. What's easier, to go around and just say your sins are forgiven or to make this paralyzed man rise again? And so Jesus says, well, I'm going to do both. Your sins are forgiven. Now take up your mat and walk. And he did it, right? And so Jesus displays his authority in not only healing us from the inside, but also to the outside. And what he's doing is he's showing us this kingdom that's coming. And we've been talking about week in and week out and how it begins working inside of us. And then it extends to the outside of us. That's the nature of Jesus' kingdom that he's working here. Sin runs so deep that our only hope is a substitute. Our sin is so deceiving to us that oftentimes we don't even see what it does to us. 
But Jesus shows us that our greatest need, and this is, this is the way of paradox, our greatest need is not healing. Our greatest need is not the fill in the blank. It's not the promotion. It's not the family. It's not the money. It's not the status. It's forgiveness. And what we see, and we'll see it here in this passage, is that when you understand your great need for a savior, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about you. So our greatest need is forgiveness, and only Jesus can offer that to us. So the rhetorical question in the passage shows us the, the, the need for forgiveness when, when Jesus, or when the scribes ask him, you know, who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is nobody. God alone can forgive sins, and Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the restorer of your faith. I am the one who extends forgiveness. I am your coming healer. And the response is to be that of ours today. Look at the last verse there in verse 12. The man rose up, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And here it is. They stood amazed, and they glorified God. They stood amazed, and they glorified God. One thing that we can be sure of at every account that we will see in Mark's gospel, is that when people encounter this Jesus, they never leave the same, ever. They are always changed by it. And so the main claim that Jesus makes today, and he's been making in our passages and he'll continue to make, is that he's the king of God's kingdom. He's showing us that he's the king. And there are only two responses in my mind to this. If Jesus says who he is, All you can do is stand in amazement and glorify that king. Your only other option is to ignore him. That's it. The the middle way that is so popular, the way of lukewarm, casual observers in the crowd, doesn't seem to be an option in my mind because Jesus is either who he says he is or he is not. And if he is who he says he is, there is simply one response that we can have, and that is to leave changed, to leave amazed, and to leave... Uh, in response to him. So I believe that there are two types of people in this room. I believe that there are people that have struggled to believe in this Jesus, that they have struggled to see their deep need for forgiveness. And uh, I think we've seen Jesus has shown himself to be who he is. And and the only option, if you're here today and, and listen, come into church again, you were sweaty palms, you're struggling, you don't know about Jesus, you've kind of been on that outside observer crowd uh, type of movement uh, that, that surrounds Jesus so often. The only response you can have is what Jesus called us to in chapter one, and that was to repent and to believe. And we've talked about this. Let me just kind of rehash it for a moment. Repenting and believing is is simply turning away from whatever it is you're trusting in and begin to trust in Jesus. That's it. It's turning away from those things that you've made your idol, that you've made your savior that we talked about, and putting Jesus on that throne. And again, being very super practical in our application today, the first act of obedience that Jesus calls his followers to is to identify themselves with him, and that is done primarily through baptism. Baptism is simply a physical sign, and act that shows uh, God's pursuit of us and his willingness to cleanse us and welcome us into the kingdom. And that is the first act of obedience for God's followers. So if you're here today and you've never been baptized and you're interested in following Jesus, I want to talk to you about that. 
We're a church that, that protects what God does at this table, both in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, we don't really, we're not really into emotional decisions where, okay, that sounds good. I'm interested. I, I really want to sit down and talk to you and see where you're at with this and, and see how the Lord's been at work in your life. And so if that's you, do not leave this place without talking to myself or our prayer team that's in the back. Uh, what you'll notice about in this encounter and every encounter is that, that the decisions made to follow Jesus are not primarily based on knowledge, nor are they primarily based on emotion, but they're primarily based on the call that Jesus gives to do it. And so knowing and being overwhelmed by it comes in the act of following. That's actually what it is. So today doesn't have to be the super emotional experience for you. I hope it is. I mean, sometimes it can be. But I want you to know that Jesus calls us to turn and to trust in him. And the first act of that is baptism. The second uh, group of people, and I, I trust that this is by and large the majority of this group, is, is people who have done just that. They've turned away from whatever they were trusting in, and they're trusting in, in Jesus. And I, and I hope and I believe that that's many of you today. You've, you've trusted him in baptism. You've repented. You've turned. You continue to walk in faith with him. Well, the, the, the call to you is, is not much different. Because all of us still struggle with idolatry. We all want to replace Jesus, right, on some level. And so the call is still to trust and obey. It's still to turn away and to trust and follow Jesus. But what this looks like for some of you, uh, let me just hit on this one more time, is maybe it's getting from that outside observer, onlooking crowd stage of your life and your faith and diving into what Jesus is doing here. Maybe it is taking that step that is extremely uncomfortable for you. Like this is new to you, like meeting people and setting up church and being involved and people knowing your, your mess and you knowing their mess and doing life and faith and community together. That's all new to you. But I believe that that's what Jesus wants us to do. I believe that's what these men would have done. Can you imagine what the response of not only the crowd around him, but these four men and this man who was healed would have been? We're not, they're not named, so we don't know anything about this, but we can speculate with sanctified imaginations in so many different ways. I mean, you can only imagine the extent that this changed their life and the trajectory of it. That this man thought his health was his ultimate hope, and he found out that Jesus and the forgiveness of sins was. So the looming question on our passage today was this, who can forgive sins? And the answer, God alone. Jesus is the God who gives forgiveness. In Philippians chapter 2, God tells us of this position of authority that he's given to Jesus, that he has made him the king and the ruler over everything. It says that God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news for us today. This is the way of paradox that the King offers us today. Would you trust and believe that? Let's pray together. Father, we yet again stand amazed and humbled as we look into the eyes of Jesus that he was a man of um, clean lips and a pure heart and he was a man who loved you with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And Lord, that simply is not us. And so Lord, we do not hide that fact, but but we do want to hide ourselves in Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that 
that some of those calls that I've placed upon people today would fall on soft hearts, Lord, that you would that you would perhaps move in in saving ways into the unbeliever who's here today and has yet to commit his life to following Christ. I pray that you would do that. Uh, For those of us who have trusted uh, Christ and follow him, Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us our need for him, that we would uh, be rid of this um, sense of arrogance and pride that somehow we've arrived and and now we can just show others the way because that's not what's taking place here. Lord, I pray that you would plug people into your church, that you would show them that service is the avenue um, for um, the remedy for spiritual apathy, that you would show them uh, what it means to serve with uh, joy and love in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for meeting us today. We pray that you were exalted here and that you would continue to work in our lives, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.